0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: Those differences are related to animal genetics. Uh, in, in In the developed world, we have very advanced breeds that are very efficient and been under selection for eating the least amount of feed and producing the most amount of animal protein.
0: Hello and welcome to a Tech Tuesday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Welcome back after the long weekend. It was certainly a long one for me since I was out Thursday and Friday. And then, of course, we did not record yesterday because of Labor Day. So it feels good to be back after almost a week but today I am flying solo. It is Delaney's birthday. So she is out celebrating, I guess, with some lunch. And it looked like from what I saw that her coworkers were spoiling her with balloons and all of those fun birthday things today. So definitely a happy birthday to her. If you haven't already, maybe give her a birthday shout out on Facebook. Or Twitter. Other than that, though, I want to go ahead and kick things off talking about some news. I want to first kick things off talking about some more disruptions as we continue to assess the damage from Hurricane Ida. It has been reported by U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack earlier today that the U.S. will likely avoid major disruptions to grain shipments linked to damage from Hurricane Ida at the Gulf Coast. He was quoted as saying, I understand that while there's going to be some disruption, that it's not going to be so critical as to significantly curtail our capacity to export. At this point, I am fairly convinced we are not going to see major disruptions to our exports. I definitely think that's some good news following the long weekend. It was one that I was keeping my eyes out on, of course, as we continue to see that, at least in New Orleans and down in that area, that they are still, of course, having trouble with their electricity. They are, I assume, going to be dealing with that for quite some time. But other than that, I have a follow-up here talking about chlorpyrifos. I think I reported on it, I know at least once, maybe twice, but I have a little follow-up here as many ag groups are wondering what will happen next after EPA's decision to revoke all tolerances for the pesticide chlorpyrifos. Allison Crittenden, who is the Director of Congressional Relations for American Farm Bureau, says that this decision wasn't made through the typical pesticide registration review process, which is something that we have talked about already. And she tells Brownfield Ag News that this new rule is going to take effect in six months and could cause some challenges for farmers. She said, what happens if food products have corpyrofo residues after the six-month period? How is EPA going to work with FDA in managing those chlorpyrifos residues and what kind of responsibility will farmers have to prove that they were using this product per the label and were not breaking the law per this decision?" Crittenden also says that she is concerned that this decision to revoke tolerances for food use of chlorpyrifos, quote, gives a clay book to anti-pesticide organizations that don't understand the benefits of having a variety of crop protection products. She says that American Farm Bureau engaged in a prior comment period and explained that chlorpyrifos is the most effective tool in a lot of scenarios. We also heard some things from American Soybean Association president and South Dakota farmer himself, Kevin Scott, saying that he uses chlorpyrifos to manage spider mites and soybeans and that this is going to be a hard thing to compensate for. He told Brownfield that growers have reason to be concerned for what the decision means for future crop protection tools. The American Soybean Association has pushed for continued farmer access to chlorpyrifos and we'll be keeping our eyes out for what happens next. As Scott also says that corpyrophos isn't the only thing we're worried about. It's what the next product could be if EPA is going to drop them based on a pending lawsuit. We need to play a little harder in that realm and be a little more astute and busy on the legal front. Now, talking about some international news, I'm gonna kick things over to India as some. Rather angry growers, producers um, gathered outside of Delhi to protest farm laws. And it was thousands of Indian farmers gathered in a, a large grain market outside of New Delhi earlier today as they were protesting ag laws. They say that threatened their livelihoods and actions by police during similar demonstrations last week. Albir Singh Rajul, a senior farmers leader, said that a large number of farmers are attending the meeting to ask the government to punish those responsible for using force against unarmed and elderly farmers. According to Rajul, farmers will also organize demonstrations at major government offices to press their demands. Last month, about 10 farmers were injured after police resorted to baton charges to stop protesters from blocking a highway. One farmer died later, although officials say the death was not due to baton injuries. And these protests have been going on for more than eight months. There's been uh, tens of thousands of farmers that have camped on major highways to New Delhi to oppose the laws or the farm laws, I should say, in India's longest running growers protest more than half a million farmers participated in a protest in India's most populous state of Uttar Pradesh on Sunday which has been the largest rally yet demanding the withdrawal of the laws that were introduced in September of the last year farm leaders say the laws would erode a long-standing mechanism that ensures farmers a minimum guaranteed price for their rice and wheat but the government says this will help growers get better Prices, whether or not you know these laws are really working, um they were just introduced last September, so I'm not exactly sure um you know how that law stands or anything right now, but Definitely think that the relationship that farmers have with government, you know, not just here in the U.S., of course, this story is coming from India, is an important one that definitely needs to um, be dealt with. Whether or not they're going to these extreme measures like these Indian producers are, I don't know, but hopefully, you know, we get some kind of resolvement soon. Now, down in Brazil, the South American country has confirmed two cases of BSE as the country has suspended beef exports to its top customer. The country's ag ministry says that it confirmed two cases of atypical BSE in two separate domestic meat plants this past Sunday in the states of Monte Grosso and Minas Gerais, as part of a health pact between Brazil and China, the two countries will suspend trading immediately and allow China to decide when to import the meat again. The ministry says that these cases were the fourth and fifth cases of atypical BSE detected in Brazil in 23 years. Atypical BSE developed spontaneously and isn't related to eating contaminated foods, and the country has never had a case of a classic BSE The cases were confirmed on Friday and sent to the World Organization for Animal Health Lab in Alberta, Canada. The ministry said there was no risk to human or animal health. The ministry said there was no risk to animal or human health. Like I said earlier, that Brazil has has stopped trading with China, but it has not yet been reported on whether or not they're stopping trading with anyone else. But I will keep my eyes out on this as this develops. I'm going to end things here, bringing things back to the U.S. As Congressman Jason Smith of Missouri says that his meat processing bill will help provide a fair price to cattle producers and consumers. Smith said the Feed America by Incentivizing Rural Meat Packing Act, which is co-sponsored by Roger Marshall of Kansas and Mike Rounds and Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, provides market competition to the Big Four meat processors. Smith was quoted as saying it creates two tax incentives to help facilitate or grow small and mid-sized meat processing facilities, allowing cattle producers to compete for better prices in the marketplace. The bill provides a 25% tax credit for small and mid-sized livestock processing facilities and a partially refundable credit for startup and organizational costs for those businesses. Smith added that this legislation only helps ensure that we have a level playing field for our nation's cattlemen and hopefully return to more of a fair price for both cattlemen and consumers. Smith said that while his bill will create more competition, the cattle market needs to use multiple approaches like parts of Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley's bill and others from Nebraska Senator Deb Fisher's bill. You know, we've been talking about, you know, fair cattle prices or, you know, fair markets. In the cattle industry um, and in competition, fairness um, you know, quite a bit. So I, I don't feel as if I have to kind of explain this one or go on some kind of crazy tangent. You know, I won't get on a soapbox or anything, but it's just another piece of legislation that is being introduced and, you know, a way to help not only our cattle producers, like Smith said, but also our consumers as well. But folks, it is that time where I go ahead and talk about the markets here. According to DTN, grain and soy markets are crumbling on good weather, poor exports, and bearish outsides. Despite some progress being made in getting Gulf export terminals up and running, Grain and soybean futures went down on mostly warm and dry finishing weather ahead. Also pressuring the markets was the sharply higher US dollar and low equities and crude oil and the corn and soy basis are siding ahead of harvest here. So I'm going to go ahead and hop right into things here with the grains. The September corn contract down 12 and a quarter cent to close at 495 and three quarters. The D's down 13 and a half cents to close at 510 and three quarters. In soybeans, the September contract down 14 and a quarter cent to close at 1268 and three quarters. November down 15 cents to close at 1277. In spring wheat, The September contract closing five and a quarter cent lower at 9.10 and a quarter. The December closing down four and a quarter cent lower at 9.08 and a quarter. Right across the screen here, when we're looking at livestock, really all over the board, starting out here in live cattle, the October down a dollar and five cents to close at 123.75. The D's. Closing lower a dollar thirty seven and a half and a half at 129.55 the February down a dollar 45 at 13370 in feeder cattle similar situation here the september contract down two dollars and 20 cents at 156 and a half the October down two dollars 42 cents at 16005 the november down $2.40 to close at 16287 and a half in lean hogs the october contracts closing a $1.47 and a half lower at 8810 the d down $1.32 and a half to close at eighty seventy seven and a half. and a half and the february down 77 and a half cents lower at 8317 and a half Rounding things out with our Class Three Dairy Milk futures, ending a little bit more on a high note as the September contract is up thirteen cents at sixteen seventy seven, the October up fifty seven cents it goes at seventeen forty two, and the November up forty nine cents at seventeen fifty nine. With that, I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to our Tech Tuesday conversation that we had with Celigen. Have you ever lost a load of grain being hauled into the elevator or sat down to do bookwork and thought, "Hmm, I thought I had a scale ticket for that somewhere." Tracking grain just got easier with WayPath by AgriDigital. The WayPath desktop and mobile app links your contracts, deliveries, storage, and scale tickets all in one place. So you'll never miss a load hauled again. Simplify your grain management from field to payment with WayPath. Visit us.waypath.io to learn more and start your free trial today. For today's Tech Tuesday episode, we are talking to the CEO and president of Acelogen, Tad Sonstegard. Tad, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name there. I know I had you pronounce it for me, but uh, it's a little bit of a a mouthful, or at least the spelling looks that way. But thank you so much for coming and joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Ashton. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to discussing uh, what our company can offer as far as genetic opportunities for food animals.
0: I'm very excited about it as well, Tad, but before we get started talking about acelogen, let's hear a little bit more about your background and really how you came to be with acelogen.
1: Sure. So um, I grew up on a diversified crop and livestock farm in West Central Minnesota. Um, And at an early age, uh, I had a very good passion for trying to identify Methods for finding the best animals for breeding for future generations. So I was in 4 H and FFA, and I went through livestock judging and learned how to do performance records as a member of the Red Angus Association. And then I went off to college to learn advanced reproductive techniques because I thought cloning was a way that we could improve animals. And along the way, I learned a lot about molecular genetics and I did a After getting my PhD from the University of Minnesota, uh, studying retroviruses, I took that knowledge and used it uh, with 20 years of research at the Ag Research Service for the USDA, um, both in Clay Center, Nebraska, and in Beltsville, Maryland. And there we developed um, DNA tools, they're called SNP chips, for uh, implementing genomic selection in animals. After those 20 years with USDA, I had an opportunity to return to an animal biotech company that was started by my former PhD professor at the University of Minnesota. And I took that opportunity to be hired at Accelogen and lead their science program um, with the idea that we would use this new tool of writing back to the genome or genome editing to do genetic improvement for food animals. And that's where we're at today. I'm now CEO of that. Uh, subsidiary of Recombinetics. It's called Excelligen. And we really focus on using new breeding technologies uh, to breed better animals for a better planet.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit more about the technology, but also just as a whole, you mentioned that Excelligen is working to have better genetics for feed what you're calling food animals, or obviously animals that we're raising to eat. Talk to us a little bit Correct. more about the science and the technology that's going into creating better genetics. What are you looking to do or bring?
1: Right. So it, it's a multi-step process. Um, the first thing you need to be able to do is you have to read the genome. And fortunately for us, most of the food animal species, because of their importance in our livelihoods as, as a species uh, and as a major food source, uh, we've sequenced all those genomes of, of the major food animal groups, swine, cattle, um, sheep, sheep. Uh, fish as well, many fish species. And so if you're able to read the genome, you can identify genes and variation with those genes that are important for expressing as traits uh, that we look for when we select our animals, whether it be rapid growth or better fertility or better disease resistance. So if we can find those naturally occurring traits uh, and identify that they're causative for changing the way animals are in our systems and making them better, we can actually move those around using the gene editing tools. And really gene editing is is quite simply a way to write back to the genome. Um, And it's a Nobel prize winning technology that is basically nothing more than a, a targeted enzyme that cuts the DNA in a very specific way and allows you to uh, trick the cell to repair that double strand break back to the type of a, a form of a gene or allele that you want that occurs in nature. So without having to do crossbreeding, we can introduce um, that important trait into a population that doesn't have it quite easily in a single generation.
0: So, Tad, you you talk about gene editing, and I think that that raises the flag of, are these animals considered to be GMO animals or just an animal that has an edited gene, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, sure. So, there's a lot of uh, probably legal interpretation about what is a GMO. Um, and so, therefore, the regulatory agencies that oversee this technology, whether it's in crops or in animals, all have fairly different viewpoints as to how it should be interpreted. So in Europe, if you make any intentional changes to the genome at all, whether it's taking a gene from one species and inserting it into the genome of another species or using gene editing, that's called GMO. In other countries like Brazil, Argentina, um, and some other major countries around the world, um, they follow the definition from the Cartagena Protocol, which is an international document that talks about genetics. And in their definition, because you're actually just mutating a gene and you're not inserting a foreign DNA from somewhere else, they consider that a non-GMO. So they would regulate it as conventional uh, animal uh, and there's rules around conventional breeding as well, um, but there's no need to label it as non-GMO. And and we feel that that's really where the definition for gene editing falls in our case, because we're trying to um, change the genome in a way for those differences in the animal's DNA that already exist in nature. So, it just doesn't happen to be in that certain herd or population at the time, and we want to introduce it without bringing along all the other stuff we don't want um, from, let's say, an adapted animal that's not a very good performer. But we want that adaptation gene in our elite population so that we can um, grow them in, in other places, let's say in a hotter climate, for example.
0: So, Ted, obviously, you guys are doing a lot of research day to day, figuring out what traits to pass down the pipeline. But once you're through that research process, what does it look like as far as commercialization? Are you guys passing this technology off to another company? Are you handling handling that commercialization aspect as well? How does that work for you guys?
1: So that's a really great question. So anybody can do research on gene editing, whether you're in a university or even in a company. And that's just introducing the change and see what happens when you make an animal and then, you know, the experiment's over. Um, In in commercialization, there's a number of other processes you have to go through. And we as a company are doing that. Um, What we don't do in, in most cases for our attempt at commercialization is we don't really own the animals. We like to partner with those experts that are already breeding animals or have existing breeding programs. We will... Uh, Talk with them, find out what trait they want or what market they want to enter and try to uh, come up with a trait that will help them achieve their goals relative to the marketplace or improvement in the animal management. And then help them introduce that trait into their nucleus breeding population. And then, of course, um, their goal would be to create genetic products uh, that they either sell or use internally to create these improved animals. So we will de-risk the process of using um, gene editing for this genetic improvement by helping those partners get through uh, regulatory processes. And you really need that decision from a regulatory body within a national government before you can commercialize any of those genetic products or sell them in the open market. Um, so that's just one aspect of it. I think the other is, is that anytime you make a change in an ad- Animal's genome, um, there could be concerns from the consumer, and so what we like to focus on is is doing those changes to traits in animals that um, really bring value across the entire production chain for that animal. So even to the consumer, so shared values for us are very important, and that's why we like to focus on traits related to better animal well being and health, um, or even more sustainable production as we look to the future and, and all of the different pressures and complexities of raising animals in today's world.
0: So Tad, you talk about animal health and sustainability, and that just makes me think of the benefits of precision breeding programs. So can you just go over some of the benefits that cellogen really has and the precision breeding that you guys do?
1: Yeah, sure, that's a, a really great area to, to discuss. Um, Right now, we're very focused on on cattle. And as you know, um, often uh, activists out there castigate uh, the cattle industry as one that's producing massive amounts of greenhouse gas and causing all sorts of problems. That's not necessarily true. Uh, There's differences across the globe. And really, those differences are related to animal genetics. Uh, in in the in the developed world, we have very advanced breeds that are very efficient and been under selection for eating the least amount of feed and producing the most amount of animal protein. Um, and they have good support systems in, in nutrition and, and and other management tools to help uh drive those animals to be very efficient. But if you look in, in uh low middle income countries, Very little selection has been done on animals and just introducing the elite genetics from the developed world into those geographies is often not a solution because the animals can't uh, tolerate the heat stress or um, uh, some of the tougher uh, production systems relative to nutrition and and drought. Uh, So what we can do with gene editing is, is take some of the elite genetics that we've already developed for the temperate zones and, Uh, adapt them to the tropics, either by bringing in um, changes to the genome that allow them to tolerate heat better or to resist disease. So we actually have a project uh, to improve African dairying uh, that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we're making changes to the Holstein genome to allow them to adapt to uh, tropical environment And then smallholders can use that genetics uh, to to bring in an animal that's not going to suffer from heat stress. It's going to produce more milk. And our goal there is to actually try and double the revenues of these smallholders to improve their livelihood. Um, And while we're doing that, you know, we're lowering greenhouse gas emissions because these animals become much more efficient at producing milk. Uh, Just because they have both the adapted genetics from the native breeds and also the, the crossing of the adapted Holstein. Uh, If we look at uh, tropical beef production, especially in a country like Brazil, the animals there take uh, quite a bit of time uh, to reach market. It's two years. And it's a a non-tender, lean, very lean beef that's produced there. And it's not a very efficient production system. They have done some genetic selection. But the big trend there now is to import Angus semen from the United States and cross their white cattle, which are known as Nalor, uh, with this black Angus semen to create what's called an F1. And the F1 reaches market six months quicker. Um, so it would be really great if you could also use Angus bulls in Brazil, but if Angus bulls are walking around on the ground, they, they usually uh, suffer from heat stress and and often die out in the field. So they've gone to semen, um, artificial insemination, to to do that. The problem there is that that's very limited because those are kind of complex systems to introduce that semen into an animal out in the field. Um, So we're doing a project where we're gonna um, create tropical Angus to make bulls that can walk around on the ground. And that can have a huge impact on sustainability. Um, Just even adding 6% to the Brazilian market of Angus genetics, Um, It reduces land use by the size of a country of El Salvador, uh, reduces water use, 20,000 Olympic swimming pools worth of water, and it reduces about 6.5 billion kilograms of CO2, which is equivalent to about 350 million hours of driving. So huge impact just by changing up the genetics and adapting it to the tropics.
0: Well, Tad, this has been a great conversation and I've really enjoyed getting to know you and Acceligen. So I just want to thank you once more for coming on today. And for our listeners who might want to learn a little bit more about precision breeding, where can they find you guys at online?
1: So our website is Um, If you're in Europe, you're going to have to put HTTPS uh, because the HTTP evidently is, is blocked over there. Um, But that's the easiest way to find us. And we have a a news link that tells all the stories of all the proof of concept animals we made and also some of our commercialization stories. And we have a lot of things that are coming up in the next month uh, relative to animals that we're going to commercialize that are hitting the ground.
0: Well, awesome, Tad. Thank you so much once again for being part of our Tech Tuesday episode this week. You bet.
1: It's been a pleasure and thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again there to Tad for coming on and talking to us about a and all things precision breeding. Definitely think it's interesting. And I always, of course, like having conversations with tech companies involved in animal agriculture. I think that we do, of course, talk about crop production and those technologies. So I like mixing it up a little bit every now and then. We definitely try to have a lot of good, diverse conversations for you all. And if you're wanting to hear anything in particular, please drop us a note on facebook twitter or instagram and ad daily we definitely would love to hear your suggestions with that i'm going to let the people go